it's not like the old quality of work life days. It really is much more than that. It's building listening sessions. It's having centers for human experience innovation. It's understanding, you know, we talk about diversity and inclusion. If we wanted to deliver on those principles, we have to start with a substrate of a happy culture. We know that happy cultures attract the best employees. They keep the best employees. They have the highest return on assets. They have the highest amount uh, and percentages of return on human capital, presenteeism, all of the things that we look at from our enterprise dashboard are driven by a culture of happiness, 100%. Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now here's your host, Matt Lyles. In the last episode, episode 73, I talked with Joey Coleman about the things you can do in your customer experience to ensure you can retain your customers in those critical initial first 100 days of their relationship with you. In this week's episode, I'm taking those lessons further to discuss why customers leave you based on what it is they hate about your customer experience. If you're familiar with my six key simple behaviors, then you know that simple never stops. What was considered simple two years ago isn't considered simple today. And what's considered simple today won't be considered simple tomorrow. That means Your customers' expectations are always changing, and you have to keep up with their expectations and demands. Even better, you've got to innovate to stay ahead of those expectations and demands. But how do you know those places, those interactions, those moments in the customer experience that you should be focused on and improving? Well, one of the best ways to know where and how to innovate your customer experience is to know those moments in the customer experience that your customers hate. These are the moments that slow the customer experience down. These are the moments that cause your customers to feel frustrated, angry, stressed. These are the moments that make your customer ask, why does it have to be this hard to get what I want? When we look at the best brands in the world, Of course, they're the ones that are delivering a great and usually simple customer experience. But beyond that, they're also the ones that take the steps to proactively avoid friction and the things that customers hate. These companies have learned that if you can eliminate what customers hate, you'll automatically become the best option in your market. And this week's guest knows a thing or two about removing friction and removing those biggest things that customers hate. It's Nick Webb. Nick is a world-renowned strategist, futurist, best-selling author, and he's one of the top keynote speakers in the world. He's worked with some of the top brands to help them lead their market in enterprise strategy, customer experience, and innovation. And... Nick's the author of a number of customer experience and innovation-based books, including What Customers Crave, The Innovation Mandate, Happy Work, and his latest bestseller, What Customers Hate. 
Nick and I discuss all those top things that customers hate in the customer experience and what you can do to find those in your own customer experience. And then we discuss what you can do beyond that to deliver an experience to your customers that'll not only help keep them, but also turn them into loyal evangelists for your brand. So here it is. Here's my interview with Nick Webb. Hey, Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, well, I've been enjoying What Customers Hate. I love that. <laughs> it was a fun book to do. It really was. Well, so I'm curious, though, because your your previous book was What Customers Crave, focusing more on what customers love. So if we know what they crave and love, why is there the need to focus on what they hate? That's a great question. Well, you know, what I found and, you know, in my own Pollyanna view of the universe, I assume that everyone that ran an organization wanted to create amazing experiences for their customers. And most do. But well, I shouldn't say most do. I think many of the leaders in today do. But it turns out most of them just want to stop people from leaving. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, when you take a look at the data, the overwhelming majority of organizations really need to do a triage. They need to eliminate the things that people hate about them before they could ever move on to the ideal state of running an organization that people really like the experience. That's the, the, the sad truth is that the overwhelming majority of organizations have so many policies that are customer punitive. They have systems and tools and environments. They do so many bad things that I realized after writing Crave, which has been very popular for, and I, and I love my Crave readers because I feel like they were really into doing the right thing. But I think that this is where we have to start. And, and it was really fun to do this because uh, I've already had several of my clients that apply these methods. And it really does work if you start with, let's get rid of the bad stuff first and this build from there. Well, you said you have some of your clients that have already been doing this. What are the results that they're seeing when they focus on removing what customers hate first? I think the one thing that is most interesting about this is that we've begun the process of doing that self-assessment, right? And the self-assessment is before we go out and try to get erroneous promoter data and erroneous customer satisfaction data, all of which is wrong and fractional and useless, maybe we need to start with what is far more important, and, and that is taking a look at thyself. What do we really do in terms of the way in which we uh, handle our customers that should be eliminated? The overwhelming majority of the problems in customer experience is the behaviors of the organization, not the perception of the customers. And one thing, thing that Steve Jobs knew is that don't expect your customers to invent the iPhone, right? You need to know your customers so well well. And you need to know the way in which you deliver simple friction, freedom, and beautiful experiences that you really are able to create what they really want before they know that they want it. And so the big point that I make in what customers hate is let's do that self-awareness. It's kind of like a relationship. You know, a lot of people begin the process of trying to solve a relationship problem. And the truth of the matter is, it's oftentimes one person, right? And if we can start with the assessment of like, I don't know, am I, am I doing the right things in this relationship to promote goodness? It's a much better place. So we find that the overwhelming majority of the things that customers hate live within the systems, the tools, the processes, the philosophy, the 
enterprise culture. And it has nothing to do with what the customers are going to tell you in a lame survey. That's for sure. Wow. So I've heard you say that, you know, surveys, research, data collection, all that's really in vain. And that speaks to what you're talking about, about getting that erroneous information. That's the problem. I mean, look, it's, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I have 43 patents. I've been one of the world's smallest medical implants. I've been one of the first wearable technologies. So I started my career as a technologist. And I approach customer experience as an innovation design process, because it turns out that customer experience is an innovation activity. And, you know, if you think about the definition of innovation, innovation is the process of creating novel value that serves your organization and your customer. But when you look at customer experience, it's the creation of novel value that serves your organization and your customer, right? So we have to create newness and we have to go above the customer's baseline level of expectation. So in order to do that, innovation requires really good insights. And in fact, in the design space, we call it VOC, voice of the customer data, right? So what do we really know about the customer so that we can create not a bright, shiny object, but a delicious, beautiful human experience? The problem most organizations have is in step one. Their insights are really, really bad. Well, then how can they go about making sure that they're getting the right insights? Right. So, you know, let's take a look at how we do it now. One of the largest organizations in the world that works with most of the automotive dealerships and automotive manufacturers, uh, they run net promoter scores. And, you know, I won't go into all of my disdain about net promoter scores, because I think that when done with adult supervision and as part of a fractional insight strategy, they're useful. But as a singular method of getting insights, In my opinion, they're a disaster. And I'll give you an example of how it plays out. You know, recently I've got kids that are, you know, buying cars and so on. So I've had the luxury of buying four cars over the last two years. And what's interesting is when you go to a dealership and you buy a new car, they'll say, now it's really important that you fill out this survey, right? Because it determines our X, Y, and Z. And we all know why we want the, they want that number to be good, right? right. Uh, it impacts their relationship with the manufacturer. It impacts their uh, survey scores. My, my wife bought a car and, you know, it was a fairly expensive luxury European car. And they sent her a survey. And this survey was, you know, eight pages long. And um, so she threw it away. And then they of sent course. her another survey. Right. I mean, <laughs> she doesn't work for them. I mean, right. Uh, so she threw it away, just like everybody else does. But on the third envelope that came to her, and this still blows my mind, and apparently they still do it because this just happened a few months ago. They sent a, you could see there was currency in the envelope, like money, like, you know, real money. Like, was it a thousand dollar bill? What was it? So my wife opened it up and it was a, dollar bill. She bought a $78,000 car and they sent her a dollar bill because that's how well they know their customers, right? What are they going to say? How was your experience? Okay. What if it was bad? So I filled out these forms and I said, horrible, worst. I gave them the worst score on everything. In the narrative part, I said, this was a disaster. In fact, this experience may cause cancer, you know, And, and I sent it back thinking, oh man, I can't wait to get this phone call. You would think. Nobody ever called. Wow. Right? So knowing that somebody hates you is interesting, but knowing why somebody hates you is critical. 
And I don't believe these survey methodologies do it. So how do you how do you do it? In my consulting practice, when I go into a company, I take a look at the five touch points that they deliver to their customers and the personas that they've identified. And I ask them some really basic, you know, I take a look at things like, you know, how long does it take for somebody to pick up a phone call? How long, you know, what's their return policy? I look at procedures, policies, engagement times, wait times. It's all there. Everything you need to know is right there with the exception of about 10% of additional insights that you can get through CX hackathons and through CX safaris. And when you apply those along with an internal tough self-analysis, that's how you get the insights to be amazing. One of my favorite companies is a company called Lemonade Insurance. Lemonade Insurance might be as close to perfection as you can get. Now, there's a few things that they do. Number one is they took a look at the insurance industry and they realized there were two things that customers hated. And by fixing those two things, they became a phenomenal success. And therein lies the importance of understanding hate. They realized price and friction is what people hate about insurance. So if you're a renter and you need rental insurance, in 60 seconds, you're insured. Yeah. If you have a claim, in 90 seconds, you filled out a claim form. That's a mutation in the, in the industry. And then they did something that was so mutated, that was so bizarre. They actually have on their blog, a blog post that says, we suck sometimes. And they went on to talk about the stupid things they've done in the formulation of their business and the delivery. I, I just, I mean, as they're authentic, they're transparent, they admit their imperfection, they delivered as close to perfect as you can get. And compare that, and we do a lot of work with insurance companies, compare that to friction-laden, miserable processes that everybody hates. The opportunities today in the C-19 economy or the post-C-19 economy that is driven by chaotic innovation is the ability to deliver a far better experience and you've got to stop by eliminating the hates. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and then I saw Lemonade.com in your book. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to take a moment. I'm going to go visit their website. And then just the website alone, comparing that to every other insurance site, it was as close to the Google homepage as you're going to get in the insurance industry. 100%. Yeah, because we know that contents density drives confusion and confusion equals friction. And everybody hates friction. Right. So minimalistic design with crisp, clear, real language. That's as good as it gets. It really is. I mean, it's just um, and, you know, there we're seeing companies being displaced in just about every industry by people who have gone out, eliminated the hate and created complete products and services around what companies hate. Some are old established companies that have maintained their uh, ability to eliminate hate companies like In-N-Out Burger. There are organizations like Dutch Brothers Coffee that are destroying Starbucks and will ultimately be one of the biggest players in the overpriced, delicious coffee business, right? So, um, and they're not doing it with a a different coffee. They're doing it with a different experience, 100%. And I've got to say that that at least is still standing out from the norm. I think most commonly, most brands are still focusing their efforts on customer acquisition instead of customer retention. 100%. Why are they still doing that? Well, it's interesting because uh, if you look at it from a 
four quadrants of where our money comes from in enterprise. We have one fourth is customer acquisition, which is typically sales and marketing. Right. The other fourth is keeping the customer, customer retention. The other fourth is customer promotion, where we have customers recommending us. And the other fourth is avoiding customer deflection. If we want to drive sales, we don't care about the inherent humanity and goodness of loving and respecting our customers. If we just care about it from a pragmatic dollar and cents perspective, it's still the best way to increase revenue by 75%. So customer, you know, as we all know, it's uh, far less expensive and far better. They say the best customer to get is the one you already have. There's so much truth into that. So how do you keep them? Remember that the baseline level, we call it the baseline level of current expectation, the bar is always rising because of hyper-consumerism, enabling technologies, new economic models, and new value models. So innovators are innovating better experiences and value. So we have to realize the, the baseline level of expectation continues to rise. We lose customers when we take them for granted and when we don't continue to innovate improved ongoing human experiences. Regarding promotion, Promotion is the best possible thing, but you have to get somebody into a level of advocacy to be a promoter. And advocacy means they really like you. And that means you have to deliver holistic experiences that are specific to a range of customer personas. And when I say holistic, you know, going back to the car analogy, the car salesman was great, super friendly, loved him, and we bought the car from him. The person in finance that did all the paperwork to get our DMV records, uh, super cool, really fun. But when we get the first oil change, the service manager is the spawn of the devil, right? And so how do I feel about the dealership? Horrible. Why? They delivered a fractional experience that wasn't beautiful across five well-defined touch points. We don't get to be bad at any of the five touch points, and we have to be beautiful no matter who the persona is. And I think sometimes when when you've got such a disjointed experience, where it's really remarkable in one area, especially in some of those more initial and first areas that you see, that sets the bar and sets customer expectations even higher. 100%. And, you know, we've all gone to a restaurant where it was recommended by everybody. The food is exquisite. The servers are nice. But your first touch point is a super, super angry, dysfunctional hostess. Yeah. Right. And her whole purpose in her job is to share her pain with others. So, you know, that. Uh, so what do you feel about that? That recently happened to me. I, I feel bad for her. And I hope that that whatever is happening in her life gets resolved because she's a human. I want her to, to thrive. Uh, and probably the culture there is allowing that kind of thing to happen. But the point that I'm making is I will never allow them to charge me, you know, 400 bucks for a dinner, do a cashectomy on me for good food, but still spank me the minute I walk in the door, right? For me personally, and maybe I'm a customer experience snob, deliver a really good holistic experience if you want me to come back. And you know what? If it wasn't for that, I would be there every Saturday night. That's how good the food and the environment and everything else was. And that's the thing that uh, that people that lose. The other issue is I talk, when I talk about those four quadrants, there's another thing called deflection. And when was the last time you went on to Amazon and bought a two-star product? 
Probably never. Yeah, never. Yeah. Right. Because of the influence of the hyper influential community. In fact, something that's really interesting, if you go into the mall today, you will witness firsthand what we now call the retail tsunami. The retail tsunami is the J.C. Penney's, the uh, Neiman Marcus's, the Sears, the people going out of business and right. being replaced by completely different types of businesses. And one business that's very bizarre to me is a business called the Amazon Five Star Store. Now, these are springing up at every store across America, and they only sell the products that receive the highest amount of sales and ratings from the hyper-influential community of Amazon buyers. And Amazon also uses artificial intelligence to validate the authenticity of reviews. Right. So when you go there, you actually see a little shelf talker that's a digital sign, a little miniature digital sign that shows a current review and the, the real-time star rating of that product. Well, I actually, I fibbed a little bit. It's not called the five-star store. Yeah, it's four stars. The four-star. Yeah. And why is that important? It means perfection is a unicorn, but being the best choice for your customer should be everybody's primary concern. Always be the best choice. Does that make you second choice? It makes you second choice to perfection, but it doesn't make you second choice. It makes you first choice in terms of options. And that's something that Amazon, that's why they didn't call it the five star, because there is no such thing. It's always be the best choice. And that requires you deliver experiences that are beautiful across five well-defined touch points that are well above the baseline level of current expectation across a range of customer personas in both digital and non-digital environments. Those, that's the trifecta of what it means to deliver a holistic experience. So as it relates to the holistic experience, whether you're Amazon or whether you're a you know, high-end restaurant or whether you're a car dealership, how can you ensure that the experience that you deliver to the customer is that holistic experience? Yeah, well, you know, unfortunately, the purveyors of what I call the survey industrial complex, because the survey industrial complex is this machine, it's this monstrous billion dollar machine. And uh, they would like you to believe that if you buy a software package and you push out surveys, then you'll get the insights. We know that that's really not true. Uh, let me give you a kind of an example of some of the things that you can do to be able to do this in a more practical way. I think number one, the first thing you have to do is the self-assessment. Yeah. Number one, you have to take a look at your systems, your tools, your processes, your culture. It is an internal analysis. It is not an external analysis. Most surveys and promoter score data is designed to make you look good to a customer beyond your goodness. It's a trick, right? I have a company called Real Ratings, myrealratings.com, where we actually do this. We do the heavy lifting to provide insights that are actually actionable. So one thing you want to do is that self-assessment. It's painful because we realize that there's a lot of things that are causing sales deflections. The other thing that you want to do is uh, there's a TV show that was very popular uh, five, 10 years ago called Undercover Boss. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Undercover Boss is a, is a really interesting show. And, I, you know, one episode, for an example, was this episode where this guy owned a major uh, chain of fast food restaurants. And he put, you know, rubber nose and glasses and a fake beard and a wig on and went out to the place. And as the CEO, really for the first time, he was in a restaurant working for several days. 
And he was talking to his coworkers and they had no idea, of course, that he was the CEO. And he realized that there were two things that their company did. They treated their customers like crap. Oh, yeah. And they treated their employees like crap. And at the end of this particular episode, the CEO was literally crying with the person that he worked with talking about how clueless he was. Wait wow. a minute. That wasn't an episode. That was five years worth of the series. Everyone ended the same. There was an old uh, management methodology years ago called managing while walking about. Right. We need to do customer experience while walking about. Why aren't we looking at where our stakeholders are engaging clients and customers and just using good Bayesian logic and basic intelligence to understand what works and what doesn't work? We really don't set time aside to invent better experiences every month. The best organizations are developing centers for experiential innovation. And those experiences are both for the consumer and for their employees. The best organizations are conducting CX hackathons where they bring in customer facing stakeholders to get their ideas about what can we invent today in order to improve the way in which we deliver great experiences. So, you know, there are many ways to get insights that are far more accurate, but unfortunately, it requires a higher degree of emotional intelligence and comfort, and it also requires a little more work. And I think it requires some vulnerability as well, recognizing that, hey, there are holes in there, or kind of like Lemonade.com said, sometimes we suck, but yeah, let's, fi right. let's find out where it is that we do suck. Right. Absolutely. And I and that's what customers want. There is a story about, um, you know, how much people hated Microsoft and how much they hated, uh, you know, dealing with their tech support. And one of the tech support people decided to post a video online just with his iPhone and said, hey, this is Mike. I'm in tech support. Hey, I just want to show you what it's like here and what we deal with and the challenges that we're up against. You know, we really care about trying to get on the phone. And, you know, oftentimes we don't really have enough people. It's hard to anticipate the waves of calls that come in. And, you know, just for whatever it's worth, I know we're not perfect, but we it was unbelievably popular and a real win for Microsoft just to have somebody to be able to add the humanity back to the, the giant corporation that seems to not care about people. Yeah. And I've seen that with a handful of examples with other companies, not many, but Andrew Davis and I have talked about this before, calling it reverse personalization. So a lot of companies focus on personalization for their customers, but when you focus on you know reverse personalization, that's showing the human side behind the brand. Hey, these are real people behind these jobs, and here's what they go through. Another great example, I think, is even Domino's, just in the Domino's tracker, whether the names are correct or not, you know, you can see, hey, here's Matt baking your pizza. Now here's Rachel who's delivering your pizza. And that makes it right. a lot easier for customers to connect with that brand. 100%. I think that uh, Domino's has been genius in the way in which they have, I mean, one of their biggest, bravest moves is when they did their campaign about our pizza sucks. Yeah. I mean, that was a really big mold. In fact, uh, board members and uh, stakeholders were saying, why are you spending ad money to tell people our product sucks? 
And it turned out to be an incredible success because they improved the recipe. People liked it and it gave them a massive boost. And it required the willingness to be authentic and to say things that, you know, I speak at about 70 events around the world as a keynote speaker. I start, the first words out of my mouth is always some self-deprivating comment. And when you're on the stage, it's easy for people to think that you think you're all that. And I just want them to let them know that, hey, I'm an imperfect being here sharing with you humbly some ideas that I hope serve you. And it, it's incredible the difference in, in the way in which audiences perceive speakers that are willing to admit their imperfection really early on, in some cases throughout their talk, you know, to be human. And that's, that's something that everybody wants from their experience. They want humanity. And I've heard you say that you don't use the term customer experience, that you use the term human experience. Is that tied to your preference, your desire for using human experience? I like human experience for one simple reason. You cannot fix customer experience unless you concurrently address stakeholder and employee experience. That was an aha moment for me. Uh, in fact, you know, I did this weird rabbit hole thing where in writing what customers hate, I started going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm, I'm going through research and research about how to build happy cultures and is happy, you know. And as a result of that, released the same month, it just came out a few weeks ago. I have a book called Happy Work. And happy work is just, I mean, it's the perfect pairing with what customers hate. Because, you know, if you've ever gone to a business where people hate their job, you can see it and feel it in the ether, right? There is no way. And, and I mean, I could literally do a five-hour dissertation on this topic. But one thing is for sure, is that if we don't have a philosophy of humanism as an organization, it is impossible for us to be able to truly scale and deploy on the promise of delivering beautiful experiences for customers. It has to be systemic, it has to be holistic. So what I recommend, and I'm doing four or five of these right now, if somebody wants to bring me in to help them with their customer experience, I won't do it unless I can work with their HR department and see what's going on and see if we can offer up the holistic approach towards addressing human experience design. You just have to do it that way. Most people don't talk about it because it sounds like heavy lifting. It's the only way you can really be. You can be a three-star or a two-star, but you're not going to be the best. You're never going to be the best option in your industry, in your market, if you don't deploy on human. And I, I even call it happiness as a strategy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've enjoyed that chapter, that area, happiness as a strategy. Did you know that in addition to my podcast and my articles, I speak to audiences all over to help them simplify their customer experience and simplify their employee experience? I've spent the last few years leading a crusade of simplicity across the globe. If you want a winning brand, you have to provide a simple experience to your customers and to your team members. Whether it's a live event or a virtual event, I'd love to partner with you and teach your audience how to do just that. With over a decade in marketing, I know how to hook and captivate an audience. And as a speaker, I know how to connect with the audience. Along with my lessons, I use stories and humor to keep everyone engaged and inspired. Then they leave with the knowledge and next steps to transform their business. As an event planner, you're managing lots of details to give your audience the most memorable event. 
the last thing you need is a speaker who will make your event memorable for all the wrong reasons. Not only will I leave your audience energized and inspired, I'll make it easy for your team to work with me. Hey, if I've built my brand around simplicity, then you know I'm going to make it simple for you. When you visit mattliles.com speaking, you'll find everything you need to know, including details on my topics, promotional materials, and most importantly, a link to connect with my team so we can book your event. So visit mattliles.com speaking. I can't wait to help your audience brand out from the crowd. So why is happiness so valuable? Well, remember that at the end of the day, we dispense experiences to the people that work for us. So if the people that work for us hate customers, the chances of them dispensing good experiences, no matter how many surveys we have, no matter how many training programs we have, it's never going to result in something that really matters. The other thing is, is that customer experience is a business discipline to be sure, but it's also a philosophy. I mean, it actually is a philosophy. Some people would even call it a religion because you have to really believe that it is fundamentally important that you deliver value, honesty, integrity, quality, and all of those things in the delivery of your product, technology, or service. And if you don't believe those things, you'll never be able to be at the best possible option. The only way you can do that is you have to hire and attract the best people that will share this mission critical view of the universe. And that's hard to do if you have a dysfunctional culture. So unhappy employees deliver really crappy experiences to customers. Unhappy employees leave. And, um, you know, depending on what industry you're in, many industries, I used to be an adjunct professor at a medical school. And I can tell you that before somebody enrolls and commits to $800,000 in student debt, they don't just look at what students are saying. They want to know what the faculty and staff are saying about your university. So they'll look on glass door ratings. Right. So you should be looking, you should have an organization that is attracting the best people. Now, here is one of the challenges we have in the chaotic innovation environment that we live in today is that there are unemployed people and there are talented people, but there are no unemployed, talented people. And with that being the case, it means we have to steal talented people who are employed from somebody else. And the only way we can do that is to be the employer of choice. The only way we can be the employer of choice is to understand all of the machinery that it takes to build an HX strategy. And and it's not like the old quality of work life days. It really is much more than that. It's building listening sessions. It's having centers for human experience innovation. It's understanding, you know, we talk about diversity and inclusion. If we wanted to deliver on those principles, we have to start with a substrate of a happy culture. Uh, we know that happy cultures attract the best employees. They keep the best employees. They have the highest return on assets. They have the highest amount uh, and percentages of return on human capital, presenteeism. All of the things that we look at from our enterprise dashboard are driven by a culture of happiness, 100%. Well, then how can leaders go about instilling that strategy of happiness? What's cool about it is it works the same way as the way in which we instill the process of happy customers, right? We begin with a self. It's usually the case. Yeah. All right. You start with the assessment, with the assessment. You know, what do people hate about us? 
And you know what's interesting to me, and this has happened to me on many occasions, I've asked my clients to ask their employees, what do you hate about us? And out of the last seven that I've asked, only one of them was willing to ask that question. Only one out of seven. What were the reasons of the other six for not asking? Uh, their concern was is that they would open up a can of worms. And more often than not, is that they said very simply, our employees don't hate anything. Yeah. And in fact, you're probably familiar with a famous Bain study where they interviewed 300 plus executives and they asked him a very simple question. Uh, do you feel like you deliver awesome customer experience? Awesome customer experience. 86% said, yeah. Right. And then they interviewed the customers yep. and only 7% agreed. Yeah, that's a huge, huge gap. Right. So, you know, that we're, we suffer from this sort of delusional idea about what our employees and our customers, and this is why most people don't do it. There's a certain sort of warm anesthetic comfort of sending out surveys that have been designed specifically to make you look better than you really are. Right. That's what the uh, survey industrial complex does. And it's just dead wrong. And if you, if you prefer comfort over enterprise growth, and happy customers, then by all means, continue with your survey methodologies as they stand. But if you really care about really being the best choice in your market, in your industry, you got to work a lot harder and it requires new processes. You know, one of the things that I talk a lot about is that this is exciting. You know, we for the last 30 years, we lived in a time of what is referred to as symmetrical innovation. Right. You know, if you made hamburgers, uh, your idea of an innovation was to add salad. You know, McDonald's will add salad to their menu because people are concerned about dying from the food that they typically serve. Right. <laughs> it's an incremental form and it is predictable and it's best known as slow and small. So we lived for a long time, for decades and decades, we lived in symmetrical innovation, slow and small. But over the last 10 years, it's been almost impossible to pick up a journal or the Wall Street Journal or a trade magazine without somebody talking about disruptive innovation. And disruptive innovation means fast and big. So we've transitioned from slow and small right. to in symmetrical into this new state of big and fast. But as my 16-year-old daughter would say, that's so 2001, right? <laughs> Those were the good old days. Right. Uh, we don't live in disruptive innovation anymore. And yet most people are still living in symmetrical innovation. We live in a time of chaotic innovation. And chaotic innovation is driven by two really interesting molecules. One is it's asymmetrical. You know, it comes from unexpected places. And the other problem is it's somewhat amorphous. It's harder to bring what is and what's going to be into form. So our luxury that we had of getting insights from outdated slow processes and our luxury of not being disruptive and in this case, chaotic innovators has now left. And so the best leaders in the world are leading chaotic innovation. They're, they're developing future casting teams. They're bringing in people that have orthogonal views to their historical legacy ideas of the future. And as a result of that, they're getting real insights and they're building new innovations, new experiential innovations. And as a result of that, their organizations are going to and already have enjoyed significant scalable and predictable growth. So what are some of the ways that they're doing that? You talked about the asymmetrical side. Is that another way of saying like not being so focused on your own self and your own industry? 
Well, a good way to describe asymmetrical innovation is that it's sort of like if you Google the term asymmetrical warfare, the first example is the 9-11 attacks. Right. And so if you want to uh, not get blindsided, you have to be willing to realize that we are in a time of hyperconnectivity and we're using connection architecture as a way to be able to deliver better experiences for customers. We're connecting this to that. Right. If something right. can be connected, it will be connected. And when it's connected, it will deliver better enterprise value and better experiences for customers. But we're also leveraging new enabling technology to be able to find ways to be able to use anticipatory. Uh, you know, I, for an example, my son talked me years ago into signing up for Spotify. And I did, it took me a while to figure it out because I went from loving albums, which was a physical possession right. to, you know, because I owned the album. It was yes. artwork. You know, Apple taught me into buying a digital file, which was very sterile, but I feel as a you know, I still owned it. So I still felt like that song belonged to me. Right. The idea of renting music from Spotify seemed really weird. But, you know, I wake up every few days and Spotify has a new mix for me. Yes. And in fact, the other day it had a mix for me and it makes me mad. I mean, when I got this mix, I wanted to call and see if I could find their customer service number and file a complaint against uh, Spotify because it was really outrageous, incredibly insulting. I've served as an adjunct professor. I'm a multiple number one best-selling author. And they send me this thing and it's called chilling on a dirt road. Like, who do they think I am? So I played the mix. I love it. I play it every day. They knew it before I did. Right. So when we can use anticipatory methods to be able to understand our customers so well and deliver perfection and deliciousness to them. I mean, Amazon knows what I like to buy and they put it in front of me. Yeah. Netflix knows like what I want to watch and they put it in front of me. Right. Everybody. So we can use the, you know, the surveillance economy, if you will, uh, as a way for good instead of evil to help us deliver higher degrees of relevancy. So the point I'm making here is that to avoid a sort of asymmetrical attack, we have to realize that experiences are very different than they used to be. Right. And, you know, I talked to a friend of mine that, you know, he owns a very successful uh, grouping of muffler shops of all things. And uh, he does pretty well for himself. But if you go to his website and you want to find out how if they sell a muffler for a 1973 Carmen Ghia convertible, uh, you have to talk to somebody. But if you go to his competitors, you can put it in. It takes five seconds and they will tell you uh, if they have it in stock, how much it costs to buy it and how much it costs to get it installed. Right. That removes friction. That provides a co-benefit of reduced cost for him, benefits to the customer. And even muffler shops can address asymmetrical innovation if they're willing to be open to the new the four big enablers, which is new value, new economic methods, new enabling technologies and connection architecture. Those are driving far higher levels of customer. Value. Yeah, you have to be willing to make that investment. You have to be willing to put in the work to better understand your customer and to be able to serve them. 100%. Well, so let's go back to the customer experience focus or human experience, really. You've talked about them a couple of times, the five touch points that are in the human experience. Can you walk through those five touch points? Sure. So if you think about it from a customer perspective, the first touch point is what I call the pre-touch. Now, the pre-touch is the research moment as to whether or not they want to be a customer. You're not even really engaging them yet. So for an example, if I need knee surgery and I type in knee surgery 
and Google shows 14 clinics and I click on a clinic and it takes me to the home page of Banner Healthcare. And I have to spend five minutes trying to find out where information is about knee surgery. I've been deflected. I'm leaving. Right. Or if I takes me to the results page of local results and I see two stars next to Banner. I mean, Banner's a great organization. I doubt very much seriously they have two stars. The point I'm making is if it had two stars, I've been deflected. Right. So we don't get to serve customers if we deflect them. So bad ratings and bad websites will do it. Now, if I click a button and it takes me to a highly relevant, very specific, minimalistic page that, you know, looks a lot like take a look at lemonade. Right. Lemonade, so it yeah. looks like lemonade. And it's a very simple minimalistic. And it says the 10 things everybody needs to know before knee surgery. Right. I'm going, I'm going to stick around for a minute. Yeah. I'm going to, and, and if they do it right and they go through this and they deliver gratuitous front end value, they've now walked me into customerhood because they've given me every website. The biggest mistake that people make is they think that websites are suspended brochures, which represents over 99% of all websites. Good websites should be nothing more than a value dispenser. They should dispense free value that is highly relevant across hundreds of landing pages that are minimalistic and surgically connected to a specific key search term. So that's the pre-touch moment. Now, imagine you're looking for a job, uh, looking at this from a human experience perspective, and you search, you know, XYZ Corp. And of course, first page, because Google loves Glassdoor, Glassdoor shows up and they have a two-star review. Search over. I'm not going to apply. I'm not going to do anything other than to take them off my list. Literally, that's all it takes to drive deflection. And remember, that represents a big part of your success, right? For some organizations, deflection can result in a 75% reduction in revenue. So then let's talk about the first touch point. Let's say I go into this clinic now and I walk in there and it's a um, the reception area is open. The person is standing up and they make eye contact the minute I walk in. Hey, welcome in. Um, here's a packet of information. Uh, I believe you got our download app. So you're able to fill out all the information at your leisure on your phone. So no need to fill out any paperwork. We have a policy. We never make people wait more than five minutes. So just have a seat there. And uh, Dr. Palo will be really excited to see you. And you walk right in. Now, Dr. Palo, a friend of mine, uh, runs a, a orthopedic practice uh, called the uh, Ortho Bistro. And what he does is you, you sign up, you set up an appointment, uh, you park. There are six doors outside the clinic. And within five to 10 minutes, you're summoned to a door number and you walk right in and the doctor is waiting for you. In fact, there was a great book called The Patient Will See You Now. Right. So we're removing friction. Right. And so it's beautiful. Right. The doctor's friendly, very informative. If he were a great clinic, uh, he would publish a 200 page book on everything he's ever known about how to uh, what to understand about it. Gives him a free copy of his book, signs it for him. Thanks for coming in. Let us know if there's anything we can do to take good care of you. Uh, now, why is that a great idea? Well, it's a great idea because there turns out there's no reason to make people wait in a clinic. There's no business reason to overbook other than to make people mad. The other thing is, is that giving somebody a book, if you self-publish a book, you can print them for $3. You give them a book. Now, all the questions that they're going to call you and ask you about 
have been given to them in advance. So what I love is when you do this right and you look at it from an innovation perspective, you can create it in a way where there's symbiosis, you benefit and the customer benefits. Now imagine though, if I go into a standard orthopedic clinic, I find it takes me 20 minutes to figure out how to park because they didn't give me an app in advance to tell me where to park. I finally get up there. The person is behind the, you know, the slided opaque glass. Right. After a few minutes, the gate opens up. Yes. Right. And then you fill out the, uh, you know, 30 pages of information that you've already filled out before. And then you set on and on average in an orthopedic clinic, you'll wait for one hour to see the doctor. On average, you'll wait 10 to 15 minutes in an an exam room and then they then you are sent off into the into the world we can do better it doesn't cost more money to do better it requires a commitment that's why i'm saying this is a religion it's a philosophy if you believe in it it can be done and i love the fact that i get to use my innovation training and expertise in a way to apply it to the design of better human experiences so that's that's the first touch moment it's very important by the way if you make somebody happy in the first touch moment it's really hard for them to to get unhappy with you. Uh, You got to do something really bad. So it's about 80% of the way they're going to feel about you forever is in the first touch. You know, the core touch moment is the day in and day out of what it's like to do business with you. The last touch moment is how you send them off. When you go to Nordstrom's, they don't throw a bag over the counter. They walk around the counter and they hand you the bag like it's a samurai sword, right? Seems simple, but it's personable, it's thoughtful, and it has a real impact as you're leaving. And then, of course, the in-touch moment is how can you stay authentically connected, not selling them something. Apple has every email, every phone number. They, I, In my office, I have 30 Apple computers. We absolutely, they know how to get me, but they do not spam me. When they send me something, typically it's something I want to see. They're extremely disciplined about not abusing my contact information. And when they do send me something that's valuable. So that's what the five touch points look like. When we do it right, we create a holistic experience that keeps customers, that allows our customers to promote us, and we eliminate the issues associated with uh, digital deflection. And you talk about the first touch points. It sounds like those can be some of the most valuable, and that's where you're going to create, where, where you've got the opportunity to create much more love from customers yeah. for your brand. But you also write that the first touch points are often riddled with hate points. Yeah. Why is that the case? I mean, uh, I won't mention the name of the client, but we did a job for one of the largest restaurant chains in the world. And they were trying to figure out how to have people hate them less. And when you walk in their store after store after store, and we did audits, Every one of them, there's a person looking down at the counter. And then when you, they rise their head up, they hate you. They're mad. They look, they're, they're angry. But their conclusion was, we can't hire people that are nice. So let's put in kiosks. And that's what they did, right? So the first touch point is a, as a really, really, really big deal. It's the success. It's the driving success of in and out It's the driving success of Dutch Brothers. Every great organization is doing a great job of making that first touch moment memorable. But most people see it as transactional. You know, it's like our parents told us as young lads, 
is that uh, first impressions last a lifetime. And they absolutely do, but they also um, are the biggest impression. First impressions are the biggest impression. And that is why we need to be careful about it. But people are just incidental. I mean, I, I travel a lot, way too much, in fact, and to the point where the package is getting damaged in shipment right now. And I'll, I go to hotel after hotel after hotel, and I see these palaces that I walk into, literally palatial five-star uh, resorts and there's 35 angry people in line waiting for one person at the front. Yeah. I was at Planet Hollywood three weeks ago. I don't usually like to mention names, but I'm going to have to say it. So Planet Hollywood, you walk in after, you know, going, you know, you're getting out of your car, uh, you know, your Uber car that, you know, is disgusting in Las Vegas. You're wanting to take a bath in Benadine to, to destroy all the microbes that are flying around. And right. you get there and I'm looking for a reception. Walk in the front, no reception. Where's the front desk? No front. Wait, there's like nine screens. You check yourself in. It's a screen. And so I'm listening to other people doing what I'm doing. You put your credit, but how do you get your, just, it was a, people were walking around like, it was like, it was dystopian, <laughs> this right. moment of traveling all day and trying to get in and I'm engaging a computer. Why? Because it's cheap. Yeah. If there's anything I can ever do to never stay there again, I absolutely will never stay there again. But then it got worse. Like, wow. I, I hate to admit this, this addiction I have, but I need coffee in the morning. I get up at 3 a.m. every morning and I need a couple, I need some time to review my talk before I give a keynote. So I, I called and said, is there any way I can get coffee? As near as I could tell, I was transferred to a call center in the Philippines. Huh. I go, well, do you know that place by the, over there by the elevator? Is that, oh, I'm not on property. We don't, there's nobody on property here. So there's this big black box that runs these kiosks and their call center at this massive hotel in order to reduce costs. Unbelievable, but that's the kind of stuff we do. But you know, the thing about it is executives are good at subtraction, but they're bad at addition. They can subtract, they see what the, ben the bottom line benefits of taking out cost, but they don't see the cost associated with attrition of customers. And that's unfortunate, but those are the kinds of mistakes we make and it's horrible. Oh, absolutely. And that makes so much sense. And I see this effort where at a high level, you know, executives are saying, well, we can focus more and more and we can invest more and more in technology to help deliver the customer experience. And in some areas, in some interactions, that's the right thing to do. 100%, right. But in a lot of other interactions, there's still that need for the human experience, the human interaction. Uh, you know, the, you make a very good point is that we have to use technology as an experiential bump, not as a way yeah. just to reduce cost. And, it, you know, I feel like sometimes there needs to be adult supervision associated with these decisions because they just it looks good for a while until it doesn't. And I, I've seen it go bad so many times. I give an example, as you may recall, in the book about about other hotels that were <laughs> making decisions that were not necessarily technologies, but they were decisions to try to do upselling. And, uh, and it turns out really bad. 
Yeah. So that speaks to the need for going back to what you're talking about earlier, the need for self-awareness, but then also truly understanding what it is that the customer hates and and what's going to turn them off. So these five touch points, like that's the great way to be able to focus on the customer, provide that holistic experience. Well, Nick, I have learned a lot from you today. This has been super helpful, but where can people go to learn more? Sure. So my uh, consulting business is uh, Leader Logic, and the website is simply goleaderlogic.com. That also provides a link to my speaking and uh, to my uh, company, Real Ratings, and also to my training company. We do uh, certified masters in customer experience training. We have a certified leaders in uh, customer experience, and we have a uh, customer champion certification program for front-facing programs. So we, we do a lot of this stuff, and yeah, that's probably the best way to reach me. Excellent. Yeah. Well, there's, so it sounds like there's, there's ways to reach you to be able to work with you and then ways to make sure that our people, our employees can instill all these lessons into themselves directly too. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm always glad to answer questions. Anybody reaches out, always glad to get, you know, to, this is my happy place. You know, this is my life's work and I love, uh, I love helping people along the way. So, you know, the cash register doesn't always have to ring when somebody reaches out. We're always glad to help get people in a, in a better direction. There you go. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for being here. I'm so grateful for your time. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you having me. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Nick Webb. So go and learn more from him at goleaderlogic.com. Whether it's customer experience, innovation strategy, culture, sales force, or leadership development, you'll find lots of ways for Nick to help your company achieve sustainable growth. And if you're interested in bringing Nick in to speak to your team about the lessons you heard today, you can do that too at goleaderlogic.com. Hey, and if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead, hit that subscribe button. It's going to make it a lot simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one, Featuring Tamson Webster, part strategist, part storyteller, part English to English translator, Tamson Webster helps experts drive action with their ideas. Tamson honed her Redmark Red Thread approach in and for major organizations like Johnson and Johnson, Harvard Med School, and Intel, as well as with hundreds of individual founders, academics, and thought leaders. She's also served for over eight years as the executive producer and idea strategist for one of the oldest TEDx events in the world. So she knows a thing or two about how to inspire and engage audiences. And Tamsin's the author of the best-selling book, Find Your Red Thread, Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible. In Find Your Red Thread, Tamsin teaches you her process for taking your big ideas and making them irresistible to your audiences. And it turns out that the best way to do that is by building the story that your audience will tell themselves about your idea. And this isn't just a theoretical process that Tamsin simply believes will work for you. No, this is the same step-by-step process that she's taught to hundreds of clients, helping them deliver memorable presentations, keynotes, marketing campaigns, TED Talks, pitches, and so much more. And once you learn this process, you'll be able to win over, inspire, and influence your audience every single time. So go ahead and subscribe. You'll automatically get Tamsin's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. 
Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.